Hey, good morning, City Light Church. Good to be with you guys. Go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors. Open your Bibles, John chapter 12. We're in verses 27 through 36. We got 10 verses. As you turn in your Bibles, I would ask you to recall or consider a time in your life when you were in turmoil as you considered what you ought to do and what you want to do. Those often conflict. Many of you are faced with this great spiritual battle when you walk into this room on Sundays as you're walking past 1,500 free donuts. And as you look at the fried empty carbohydrates topped with sugar, there is a battle between what you want to do and what you should do. It's bathing suit season, everybody. Pay attention. As a parent of small children, I'm often in turmoil when a child is awoken, awakened, whatever you say, in the middle of the night and they cry out for help. I took a lot of drama classes in college, and I am really good at pretending to be asleep. And in that moment, I have to decide, do I do what I want to do and let Sarah take care of it, or what I ought to do and get my lazy bones out of bed? Some of you need to spend some time considering this question of what you ought to do and what you want to do when you consider what you're going to post on social media. Friends, there are things that you want to post, and then there are things that you ought to post. And if you need to fast and pray for a 24-hour period before posting, the world may benefit from that. We all need to choose between what we ought to do and what we want to do. In fact, psychologists say that the average human adult will make somewhere around 35,000 conscious decisions every day. Now, many of those decisions are amoral. Should I wear my gray shirt or my blue shirt? But many of these decisions, we have to enact the will and decide, am I going to do what I want to do or that which I ought to do? From how we treat other people, what we do with our time, bodies, and money, how we conduct ourselves at work, there's turmoil between what we ought to do and what we want to do. Now listen, at a very high level, here's what the gospel has to say about this. The gospel says that all of us in varying ways and degree have chosen what we want over what we ought. That God's will and God's word and God's law has been made clear to us, and yet we have chosen to go our own path and to follow our will in our way. And yet the Bible says that to remedy this, God has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come, and he is the only man who always only did what he ought, and not that which in his humanity he may have wanted. And I'll tell you this, as someone who Uh, has often chosen what I want over what I ought. I am thankful that I have a substitute who came and perfected that in my place and who followed the will of the Father all the way to the cross to die for my sins and for yours. And what we're going to see in the scripture this morning is one of the final days of Jesus on this earth. And he's entered into Jerusalem and he knows that the cross is before him. And in his humanity, he says, now I'm troubled. He has turmoil between what he ought to do, what the Father has sent him to do, and that which, in his humanity, he might want to do, escape this hour. And as he wrestles in this moment, we get a glimpse into his prayer life, and a monologue and then a dialogue that he has, wherein Jesus talks about the purpose, the reason for which he came. And uh, in looking at this text... Uh, We're going to really understand three reasons, three purpose statements for why Jesus came in his ministry on this earth. And uh, we're going to let those three statements serve as our outline together. I want us to see that Jesus came to glorify the Father. Jesus came to defeat our enemies. And Jesus came to draw us to himself. And so as you sweat and fan yourself, 
Uh, let's go ahead and take a look at the first purpose. John 12, verse 27. The first purpose is this. Jesus came to glorify the Father. To glorify the Father. Look with me at verse 27. For now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So here John gives us a glimpse into Jesus. He knows what this hour means. It's his, it's his cross and crucifixion. All throughout John, that phrase of this hour has been used over and over. And each time it refers to Jesus's crucifixion and death. He uses that phrase nine times before chapter 12. Each of them, he's saying, my hour has not yet come. My time has not come. It's not time for the cross. But in chapter 12, it switches. And over and over again, he starts saying, the hour is here. The hour is at hand. The hour is now here. Jesus knows what this week will mean for him. He knows that it ends in a cross. And so he wrestles. Now my soul is troubled. The hour has come. What do I pray? Father, bail me out. He looks around. There's thousands of people that want him to be king. They want to follow him. They want to listen to him. They want him to rule and reign in an earthly way. And he could really be somebody. He could have his comfort and convenience. He could be like LeBron coming back to Cleveland. I mean, this could be his moment. And yet he says, no, this is not the purpose for which I came. We read on. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, here's his purpose, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so here you have the summation of Jesus' purpose. It's that the Father would get glory. This is Jesus' purpose and priority. It's not his comfort. It's not his agenda. It's not that he would get glory, but God the Father would get glory. That people would love the Father, serve the Father, worship and obey God the Father. That they would lift high his name. That's what Jesus was all about. And so we see in this moment, Jesus is not self-interested or self-absorbed, receiving his own self-actualization of Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of need. He is all about the glory of the Father. And in this moment, he hears the reassuring voice of his Father from heaven. I have received glory, and I will receive it again. Now, this theme of the glory of God is a mega and massive theme throughout all of Scripture. Some 275 times, the Bible talks about the glory of God. God is jealous for his glory. He wants us to see his glory and behold his glory. And, and, and the glory of God simply means the weightiness and worthiness of God. It means his beauty and his brilliance, his superiority and his supremacy, his prominence and his priority in the world. And it's the, the commitment of Jesus that all would see the glory of the Father. And all of us, like Jesus, need to ask, what is the primary motivator of my life? Am I living for the glory of God? We're all living for the glory of something. Is it the glory of self or is it the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10 and 31 says, or 10, 13 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are to live for the glory of God. The problem is we live in a world that is addicted to self. Something went awry in the Garden of Eden when our first parents allowed sin to enter into the human equation. And that is where as God's glory once sat on the throne of our heart, that the glory of self took up that throne in our hearts. And now it's all about me. It's all about my needs and my wants and my income and my preferences and my popularity and my comfort and my security. Marriages are now about seeking personal gain and happiness. 
rather than the glory of God through the institution that he created and the good of my spouse. Parenting is now about raising great athletes and great leaders and great scholars and no longer just about raising great kids who love God and glorify God and serve people. Even churches can become a place that we view as a place to meet my needs and serve me and teach me and need me and feed my children and entertain me instead of a place where we come to worship and adore and celebrate God. Even churches become about the glory of me and no longer about the glory of God. And here's the kicker. Seeking our own glory doesn't actually work. That's why everybody's miserable. (laughs) When you live to satisfy yourself, it doesn't work. You don't get satisfied. Everybody thinks 20% more of what I already have will satisfy me, and it won't. And so our hearts seek self-promotion and self-satisfaction, self-glory and self-gain. And yet it doesn't work because that's not what we're designed for. We are designed to live for the glory of God. And so let me ask you, if all the layers of your life were to be peeled back and to reveal the core and center of of the motivation driving everything you do, in your life? Are you living for the glory of God or for the glory of self? As a fellow sinner, I would say the majority of my time, I'm living for the glory of Gavin. I would like to say it's not true, but if you could look at my heart, if I could honestly assess moment by moment what is driving me, it's a battle not only day to day, but moment by moment. Every week I need to answer the question, am I going to preach to impress or am I going to preach to glorify God? Am I going to preach what's popular, or am I going to preach what is true? Will I make my financial decisions around my desires to the glory of God? Will I serve at home and in the workplace to glorify God or to seek my greatest comfort? That's the struggle. And yet here's the counterintuitive secret to finding real joy, that the more that we die to ourselves and our longing for personal gain and glory, the more we find life and joy in seeking the glory of God. Amen? So Jesus knew in this moment, it was his greatest joy. And can I say that some of the people that I have learned this most from are in this very room. It has been such a privilege to be a part of this church and to see people quit chasing their own glory and seek the glory of God and find that they actually find more life and joy in seeking his glory. For the past however many months, uh, most of you know we've been raising money for this West Omaha thing. And I think I've expressed to most of you that I absolutely hate raising money. I mean, that's like my least favorite thing about what we do. And yet we do it because we had to do it when we planted the church because you just, sometimes you got to take responsibility and make the ask and raise the funds and do whatever it takes to resource the mission that God has called you to. And so um, it's making the ask. It's been meeting with people and no one likes asking for money. Can I just say that? When you go to seminary and think, I'm going to be a pastor, you're not thinking, I want to stand on the stage and have a flying UFO and try to raise a bunch of money. But Here's what I think the Lord has taught me in this season where I've had to sit down with real human beings and talk to them about finances and giving is I've seen people give up extraordinary amounts of money, some with a lot of money, some without, some people that are taking on extra shifts to fund this thing. And what I've seen is they, they aren't giving out of reluctance, they are giving out of joy. They're looking me in the eyes saying, Gavin, this is the best thing I can do with my money. I get joy in investing in the kingdom of God and the glory of God, the name and fame of God in our city. And it's been amazing because as I look at that check, I think I would have bought the boat. I mean, (laughs) I mean, just honestly, I I have to self-assess. Could I have done that? I don't know. But it's been such an amazing thing to see people 
freed up to follow and serve God and to live for the glory of God. I was driving home this week with Brian, my buddy who lives in the neighborhood. Uh, he's getting baptized in a couple weeks, and we were just talking about work and life, and he's done well in the, in the medical field. And he was just saying, Gavin, there was a time when, when I sought the next promotion and the next opportunity and the next pay raise. He said, but since I've been walking with Jesus, I've just, I've learned to be content. And you know what? Other people can have those opportunities and promotions and pay raises. I'm really content living for the glory of God right where I am. Isn't it true that our greatest joy isn't in chasing more, but in, in making much of the glory of God? That's what Jesus knew in this moment. Here he's entered Jerusalem. He knows what's right before him. And Hebrews 12 said, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It wasn't joyful to bleed out on a Roman cross. It wasn't joyful to be forsaken by the Father. It wasn't joyful to take on the wrath of God towards the sins of the world. But it was joyful to seek the Father's glory and to be about his will. And so why did Jesus come? Number one, he came to glorify God. Number two, the reason Jesus came, he came to defeat our enemies. Look at verse 29. We read on. Remember, God has just spoken down from heaven to Jesus. Here's how the crowd responds. Verse 29 says, The crowd stood there and heard it, or the crowd that stood there and heard it, heard, that, uh, heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. By the way, isn't it true that God has filled our world with evidence of himself? And yet, people in our day, and even we ourselves, can conjecture and reason away that it was God. Here God speaks from heaven. Maybe it was thunder, you know? In our day, you have the evidence, the fingerprints of God written all over the universe. And some people might say, well, maybe it was thunder. Maybe it was a big bang. Maybe it was immaterial and impersonal forces coming together. The problem is not with the reasoning. It's with our hearts. And that's these people. Well, maybe it wasn't God at all. Verse 30, Jesus answered them, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Here's what Jesus is saying. The moment of the judgment of the world has now come. He's going to die on a cross, and it's going to look like the sinful, broken world has defeated him. As he dies, the Roman execution. But he's saying, no, no, no. It's actually the world that's coming into judgment. That Jesus is going to raise again victoriously after three days, bodily, physically. And he's going to come once again to rule and reign. And everything that is broken and fallen in this world will be cast out of this world. And he will reign with righteousness and justice. And he will bring um, judgment upon everything that's fallen and broken in this world, including the devil. And so Jesus is saying, no, 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 now is the moment of victory. Now is the moment of winning the cross will be the death blow to sin and death and the devil that will ultimately lead to their banishment once and for all. And so what you need to know this morning is that if you are in Christ, Jesus has defeated your greatest enemies. Your greatest enemies have been defeated, and they might take shots at you, but they cannot defeat you because Jesus has already overcome them. Now, I know that I might be a little old-fashioned or sound a little old-fashioned for believing in a little literal devil. Some of you might say, well, Gav, it's 2017. Aren't we beyond this folklore? You really believe in a, you know, a literal devil? Have we not been enlightened? To that, I would say, listen, this book leaves no room for conjecture. The devil is real. He is the enemy of our souls. It says that he is prowling about like a lion, looking for someone to, to uh, devour. 
It says that he's the father of lies. It says that he came to um, steal and to kill and destroy. And this is the enemy that um, is after us. And so you might say, well, if Jesus said that he came to uh, defeat our enemy, the devil, how does he still have power and influence in this world? Well, to that, I'll give you two answers. One, the theological answer. The other, Gavin's sort of waverly, dumbed-down illustration that's helpful to me, and it may be to you as well. So the theological answer is that the kingdom of God comes in two phases. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God when he came the first time. He came as the king of the kingdom, and he dealt with the penalty of sin on the cross. So the king comes, he deals with the penalty of sin, and now his kingdom is anyone who receives his forgiveness and follows his kingship. So his kingdom is anywhere where, his, uh, where he rules and reigns as king. So it's in our lives, it's in our communities, wherever Jesus is king, that is his kingdom. And the devil has received his death blow. And yet, until Jesus comes uh, the second time, he will not be completely cast out. But any day now, and it could be eminent, and it is eminent, Jesus is going to return to this earth bodily and physically, and this time he's going to rule and reign absolutely. And that's the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, when he doesn't just reign in an invisible way, but where the kingdom of God becomes visible, and God banishes from the new heavens and the new earth everything that is sinful and wicked and broken, and he will reign in justice and victory forever. And on that last day, not only sin's penalty will be taken away, but sin's presence will be taken away. Not only Satan's primary power will be taken away, but also his presence will be taken away. And so we're living in an era that theologians call the already, but not yet, of the kingdom of God. It's already here, but not yet fully here. So now for Gavin's Waverly illustration. When I was in, um, I think it was in elementary school, there was a wasp in our garage. So I grabbed the fly swatter and I swatted the, the wasp and it fell to the ground and I picked up the wasp to throw it away and it stung me. Now, the death blow had already been dealt. That wasp was defeated. And yet, while it was on its way to its fateful destination of our garbage can, it wanted to deliver one last blow. City Light, that is where the devil now stands. He has been defeated. At the cross, he took his final blow, and yet on his way to his fateful destination, he wants to deliver some parting shots to God's people. And so City Light, I need to say this. We need to be aware that we have an enemy, but we do not need to fear that enemy. Our God is victorious over the devil. He may lie to us, but city light, we have the truth. The devil may tempt us, but the word of God promises that you will not be tempted beyond what you can bear. But God is faithful, and in your moment of temptation, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. The devil may take shots at you from the outside and speak lies to you and accuse you, but the Holy Spirit of God will empower you from the inside He is more powerful than he who is in this world, and our Jesus is victorious over our enemies. He may have been bruised on the cross, but in the fulfillment to Genesis 3.15, he has crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus came to glorify the Father. Jesus came to defeat our enemies. And the last one I would have you write down in this very hot room, as we all sweat, is that Jesus came to draw us to himself. He came to draw us to himself. Let's finish our text. Look at verse 32. He said, And when I am lifted up from the earth, will all, uh, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all 
people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The phrase being lifted up was a euphemism for the cross. Everyone in the crowd knew it. He said that to show that he would die on a Roman cross. And he says that when I am lifted up, I will do so to draw all men to myself, that they would know me and worship me and love me and be with me for all of eternity. He says, I will draw all men to myself, not meaning universal salvation, but that all men of all nations all over the world, men, women, Jews, Gentile, black people, white people, brown people, and pink people, young people and old people, people from every tribe, all people will be drawn to the Lord Jesus, one king, one kingdom, reigning over all. And at this point, this proclamation of great news that he will be raised up and draw all people to himself, the crowd should be high-fiving him, worshiping him, celebrating, bowing down before King Jesus. And yet this hyper-religious crowd that is often Jesus' antagonist in the book of John decides they're going to have a theological debate instead. Verse 33, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, Now we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So in other words, these folks had read their Old Testament. They knew that the coming Messiah uh, would reign and rule forever. They're saying, well, if you're the Messiah, you can't die. Well, they don't understand the resurrection. They don't understand the bigger picture. But look at how Jesus responds, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Jesus doesn't even answer their question directly. He's not going to go chapter and verse with these guys. He's not going to correct their theology because he's been having a dialogue with these folks for about three years right now. And he knows that the problem is not with their reasoning. It's not with their Old Testament exegesis. The problem is with their hearts. They are stubborn and they refuse to believe. And they will find technical technicalities to base their unbelief on. And Jesus is just simply looking them in the eye and saying, listen, you've heard my message. Light or darkness, death or life, what will it be for you? The end of verse 36 says that right after this, Jesus goes into hiding. And so he will be in a public setting once again for his trial and his crucifixion, but this is his last address to the masses. These are his final words. And how does Jesus spend his last moment of preaching? With the passionate, emboldened appeal, calling to people to urgently respond in faith. And so City Light... Jesus came to be lifted up that we might be drawn to him. So by way of sweaty conclusion now, I want to talk to two groups of people. Number one, the Christians in the room. I think this passage should once again just remind us that isn't this whole story, isn't our whole story all about Jesus? He says, this is the purpose why I came, to be lifted up, to glorify the Father, to overcome your enemies. People will say that Jesus is a wonderful teacher. Yes, he's a great teacher, but he didn't come just to teach. They will say he's a great moral example. He's a wonderful example. But he didn't come just to be an example. He's a fascinating miracle worker. Yes, he did some miracles, but he didn't come just to show off some power. He came as our sin substitute. He came to glorify the Father when we ourselves live for our own 
small glories. He came to overcome our enemies when we couldn't overcome death and couldn't overcome the devil and couldn't overcome this world. And that is why even in this moment, all of the heavens are singing to Jesus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And so City Light is why we treasure Jesus and worship Jesus and lift high Jesus every week from this pulpit and proclaim Jesus to the city and to the nations because it's all about him. And for those of you who have not yet trusted Jesus, I would encourage you to hear Jesus' voice imploring you in this text. There is an urgent call to response. He's saying, walk in the light while you have the chance. In this context, he's saying, in a little while, I'm not going to be with you anymore. But all of us right now have a chance to walk in the light while we know him. But the dawn, or but the darkness will dawn in our lives. And there will be a moment when we can no longer make that decision and trust him. And so I would encourage you in this moment, would you simply receive his free grace today? He wants nothing from you but your sin in your life. And he wants to give you his eternal life. So can I just tell you, listen, it's true that he loves you. It's true that he is calling your name even now. And if Jesus is calling you to step into the light and to be his child, would you not harden your heart, but would you hear his voice and step into the life, step into the light? John 1 said that whoever receives him, whoever believes in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. Would you receive him by believing him this morning? We're going to respond by praying in just a second. So I would encourage you to express your faith to Jesus in prayer. But second thing was this. We're going to do a big baptism service in just three weeks, August the 6th in Stinson Park. And I would encourage you, if you are ready to step into the light, if you want to be a child of God, that you would express that in prayer this morning and that you would exercise that in baptism. Uh, Chris has more details coming up. We've got a baptism class next week. Um, But would you let the whole world know and celebrate that story with you, that you have become a child of God. But right now, would you just pray with me? Jesus, God, we come with humbled hearts, knowing that we are a people who have sought our own glory. Here we were put on this earth to glorify you, and yet we are so committed to building our own little kingdoms, building our own little glory, building our own little name and fame through social media networks, net worth, and uh, what we can uh, produce in this world. And yet, Jesus, it is all about you. It's all about your glory. Jesus, thank you for coming and doing what we could not, which is to die to self-promotion and self-glorification and give yourself solely to the glory of the Father. Thank you for doing that on our behalf. God, thank you for overcoming our enemies. There are no more bullies on the block out to get us, but you have done away with all of them. And we don't need to live in fear anymore, but freedom, knowing that Jesus has overcome sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus, thank you that you have come in a personal way to draw each of us to yourself. And I pray now that if you're calling people into faith in this room, even now, that you would soften their hearts, that you would speak clearly to them, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would give them faith to believe, even as they pray right now, Jesus, I am a sinner, and apart from your grace, I have no hope before a heavenly Father. And yet I believe that you came And you didn't do what you wanted, but what you ought to. And you honored the Father in every way, and you did it on my behalf as a substitute. And you went to the cross, and you died a brutal death, facing the wrath of God towards my sins. You did it on my behalf. And I receive your great sacrifice and substitute now. I receive you in faith. Would you come into my heart? Make me a child of you. I surrender everything I have to you. In Jesus' name, amen.